Riopi has fused minimalism, pop, jazz, and cinematic idioms into a distinctive crossover piano style. A self-taught composer, Riopi has built a successful career both as a performer and as a composer for television and film, where his evocative solo piano pieces provide the backdrop to popular movie and TV trailers. I'm happy to welcome this Warner Classics artist to the podcast. Hi, Riopi. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Max. Thank you for inviting me. Riopi, you were born in 1983 and raised in rural France. Since you had very little formal music education and limited access to any printed sheet music, you began playing when you discovered an abandoned piano. Yeah, I was like two years old and there was this old piano and just was attracted to the sound. You know, I guess many kids can be. I loved so much that all I kind of wanted to do. And that's how I started really, just playing with sound, playing with the keys. So basically, I two years old your musical life started yeah i remember yeah absolutely that's unusual and i mean i, I don't know to, to be honest with you it was more of a need for me you know i mean i didn't really have a happier bringing let's say you know so it was the only way i could escape i was lucky actually that i found a passion because that made me the man i am today right it really helped me develop and as a human being so <laughs> i think i'm lucky that i had a passion and of course at two years old you didn't have any formal music training music notation so your compositions really started in your head it's very weird because <laughs> i love to create there is also one thing that i always had it was counting i was very good at math and I just loved counting everything. So I think that the counting definitely helped me organize music in my head, you know what I mean? So I was very attracted to the sound, like very, very attracted to it, which made me play on the piano. But also I think my kind of passion, or I don't know if it's a passion because it's not that just math for me. I mean, counting is something that I've always done as a kind of a OCD thing, you know? Sometimes it was a bit oppressing, to be honest, to, to count everything, but everything, like tables, you know, like, I don't know, a chair, you know, everything. I was counting everything. But that helped me set the rhythms and develop, you know, more things on the piano. When you look at the three building blocks of music, melody, harmony, and rhythm, I think you can make a very good argument that rhythm is the initial starting point. Absolutely, the rhythm is everything. But I think everything is in rhythm anyway, right? I mean, we look at you know, even biology and our heart, right, as a rhythm, you know. Or we've got brain waves, you know, and they have a rhythm as well, you know. Everything has a rhythm, I think. You do notate music and read music, is that right? So you've had formal music training. At school in France, you know, we have music classes, compulsory for everyone, right, when you're like 12 or something, you know. At school, I picked up on uh, notation and everything, and uh, and it, it was pretty easy because it's math. That was pretty good, actually. I, I really enjoyed that. But I was not notating much or reading much because I was so interested in creating, composing and playing. I started to develop my memory basically, you know, for music. And to be honest with you, I don't really have a very good memory for names or anything. But I know all the notes, you know, that I need to play for all of my songs, you know, and I think I've got quite a lot now. So it was, I think, the, the way it started. Now for university, I left everything behind me. Basically, I went to England at 21 years old. And there I was working in a music shop and it was very tough. And, you know, I was working at the Teal because I was trying to make my career happen. But at the same time, it's tough. You have to make a living. So I found this job. And I was so depressed that day and I suffered from depression for my entire life until now. Basically, that guy came to the Teal. He was like, hey, how are you? And kind of instinctively, <laughs> I said, I'm very bad thinking. I just want to kill myself. <laughs> 
So I was a bit like, oops, well, and I apologized straight away. I was like, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, no, I'm good, sorry, just a bad day. And he said to me, no, no, he's like, do you want to talk about it? I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm, you know, please, you know. Uh, and he insisted. So we went to have a coffee and it was in Reading, next to London, a small town. So yeah, he wanted to hear about me and so we started talking. And, and then at some point he was like, wow, uh, you had kind of a very weird life. You know, he said, if your music is as you know, exciting as your life, you know, you're genius. Very down, so I was like, that's not going to help me you know to say that you know and um, so he said to me let me invite a friend of mine who is a pianist in Oxford you see what you do you know I was like sure so we organized at the music shop uh, two pianos in the mezzanine upstairs um, fronting each other and that pianist I think he was called Francesco he came right all the way down from Oxford to Reading and I started playing and, and he was closing his eyes and and I was so anxious and you know so scared you know to be judged because as you know I'm self-taught and self-taught pianist they didn't really have a reputation at all right it's you don't exist you're not a pianist you know I've been told if you don't play classical music you're not a pianist and I was like yeah but classical musicians were also composers so they have to create but anyway so I was very scared and we've got the two pianos and then at some point he asked me if he can join me and we played together you know we mixed you know classical and improvisation for like you know almost an hour i was in a trance state it was absolutely incredible it was one of the best you know musical experiences i've ever had absolutely stunning and then after he said yeah to my friend who his name is michael freeman and what he did he said to me you cannot stay here you know in a music shop you need to to meet people and play your music and i'm like yeah but you know it's what i'm doing i'm doing that on the side you know but he said no we should should try and do is to go to Oxford and I was like I don't, don't want to go and study you know because I, I really want to focus on my music and he said to me well Oxford Brooks University have contemporary you know full full thing that you, you might be able to do go and study and like this you can perform and do your own thing I was like why not right so he contacted them and I had what we call an unconditional offer so I was uh, very lucky that basically I had just an interview and they asked me to play the piano and we talked and they seemed to really like me and so I, I started basically doing a degree in, in music there and and then like this, I could, you know, perform. And that's how I started performing in Oxford, a first step into my uh, musical career. By the time you were 17 years old, your talent attracted significant notice and you were asked to perform at a charity telethon and at that telethon you got to play on a Steinway piano, your first chance to play on a Steinway. You remarked that a Steinway was to the piano like what a Rolls Royce is to cars. Absolutely. I was lucky to be invited to play at the Teleton. Uh, so I saw this piano and I never saw a Steinway before, you know. Uh, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, you know, in rural France, as you said. So I never saw one before and I was used, you know, to upright pianos. And when I saw it and I played on it, I was like, oh my God, I mean, this is totally incredible. It was fast and responsive and powerful. I really could fly with that piano. It was incredible. And then you were chosen to be a young Steinway artist. Did that designation lead to wider concert exposure and more activity in your musical life? Well, <laughs> if I'm bluntly honest, 
Being a Steinway artist means two things. It means that you are a good pianist, but also that you own a Steinway piano. So you need to own an instrument from the Steinway brands. I was very lucky to be invited to play at an event in London for the brand called Coach. And Coach is a luxury brand, right? And you had a lot of people like him, Gwyneth Patro and all these people there. And I was invited by the lovely Elizabeth Salzman. She asked me, you know, if I could perform one song. And I was like, oh my God, that's great. And then in the middle of the dinner, you know, she does with a little glass, like ting, ting, ting. We've got a special guest. We've got, you know, Jean-Philippe Priopi. And I was so scared. You have no idea. I, was <laughs> I stood up. And when I went to the piano, I saw on the right Chris Martin, you know, from Coldplay, right? And uh, it was more than a bit, yeah, 10 years ago. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I've got a great musician in the room. You know, that's even more scary for me, right? And uh, I played that track and I do something a bit special with the piano, and a lot of power. And when I finished, there was no noise in the room. And I was like, oh my God, I failed miserably. I was probably very, very red because I get red quite easily. And then I stood up and then people applauded and I was like, you know, I could breathe again. And then he asked me to come at his table and he said that it was amazing. I was like, oh, wow, then thank you so much. And um, a few weeks later, he, he actually bought me my piano. And through that, I was very lucky because he helped me as well to become a Steinway artist, basically, you know. The thing that no one really knows is I was so poor at the time that I couldn't put it anywhere. And when I saw him again, because he invited me to one of his gigs, he's such a lovely, lovely man. I was like, yes, me, so how's the piano? I was like, ah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I couldn't tell him, well, you know what, thank you so much, but, you know, I can't even play it because I don't have really home you know because i was squatting at my girlfriend's place at the time you know yeah it was a kind of tough time a couple of years later i got you know my piano in my flat and uh, i was working you know making a bit of money and i re recorded my first album riopi uh, on that piano Now, your work is a stylistic hybrid mix of classical, ambient, pop elements, and you've performed in all types of venues, everything from club engagements to concerts at venues such as Covent Garden. But would you say your first major break happened when you were able to market your music effectively to both advertising agencies and in the film and television industry? We live in an industry model, right? I mean, everything is an industry. I'm a musician, but I think for any musician in the world right now, you know, I think the most important is to make music, right? That's what you love doing. I love playing the piano and I love making music. And I was lucky to have basically the first little kind of uh, behind the scenes a break was to have music that people were like, oh, I like it. Can I use it in my trailer or advert or whatever? That's how I could basically first get attraction for my music. My dream was to become a pianist. It was just, I want to make concert of my piano. That's what I want to do. But all the rest around, sometimes just to make your living, you try and find a way to just make it work. And I was like open as a musician. I'm like, okay, my job today is a musician. So I'm open to, to do things because I love making music. So that's how I got into the kind of like opportunities. Yeah, it was not my dream to make a small advert, but I will never, you know, deny that because I was lucky to have the opportunity to put my work to some good use. And I think, you know, through that, I could enhance the beauty of something because I think my music has this kind of emotion, you know, so give more emotion. And again, lucky that I ended up having so many advertisings and trailers and stuff because my music is very emotional. We've got even this guy from Australia who sent us an email saying he's got this company and they make statistics. I really don't know how about emotions and advertising and how it works, right? And he was saying that my music responded like really high, you know, that's why he wanted to send an email. So I thought that was quite fun. So after that, you know, making adverts and stuff, my name got a little bit out and it was a bit easier to start making more gigs and you know and play more and I think word to mouth right because 
Again, I don't have a curriculum. I'm not a classical pianist where I'm not saying it's easier for a classical pianist, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying there is a route. There is not a route for someone like me, right? And I think I'm not the only one for many musicians who are doing the things, right? But then you need to find your own audience, your own growth. And that's what I was doing, basically. I was just like, listen, I want to make music. I want to play music. So I just make music and carry on. So I ended up playing in bars, in clubs. You know, I was drinking at the time and ended up in a bar and I was playing the piano all night and have fun with customers and then people buying me beers and I remember once I had like the top of the piano like full, like more like 30 beers. I can't drink it all, that was in Toronto, that was funny. <laughs> so you see, it's um, finding opportunities, making music, playing music, just being myself, you know, and I just see myself very lucky to be able to perform music as I want for sure. Sort of a follow-up, you've had great success and your compositions can be heard on commercials and in trailers for films as well as television documentaries. What led up to your signing with Warner Classics? It was quite interesting. Doing all this work was great. And then I was like, you know, I went to China. I was invited to play there through a friend, right? So... I went there, I played in China, and, and I had a very good reception. It was, you know, a private gig. That was the first one I did, especially over there. I have never did, you know, a private gig in China. And on my way back, I had an interest from, uh, I think it was Decca first, and then Warner, and then I had Sony. It was very funny. I met some, you know, in New York, some in London. It was a very interesting moment in my life, because for me, I'm just a musician. That's all I understand. The guys from Warner, what I liked about them, first the guy was called Jean-Philippe as well, so I was like, maybe, you know, maybe there's something there, right? Who knows? <laughs> and very kind, and I thought, you know, maybe that would be the right home for my music and help me take it away further, you know, into my career as a pianist and a composer. So basically, I was recording my first album, Riopi. My first one is actually called Chapters, and I recorded that in Oxford at the time, right? I'm in London and Oxford, 2008. But the first one with Warner's is called Riopi, and that album, I tried to record it in London, in so many different places. I went to many different recording studios, but I couldn't get the sound. There was something off about the, those recordings, you know, that didn't work with you know, what I was trying to achieve. So I called a friend of mine who is an engineer and a producer, right, that I really like, Roberto, and I asked, can you come and see, you know, if we can record at mine, because I'm, I'm only comfortable at my place to record this album. And he came and I got this like uh, big living room, basically with big windows, but I live in the city, so got lots of noise outside, right, from the cars and stuff. So we had to take the mattresses, you know, of the beds, you know, in the rooms on the windows and we basically made the, the whole room, you know, kind of soundproof and, but it's not fully. So in the, the high quality versions, you can hear all these little cracks and stuff, but I wanted to keep them because the way I recorded it was just from my heart. And it was funny that I couldn't make it before, so that's how I recorded the whole album, basically. And recorded the whole thing in one day, because I felt it. It was working. And when the, this recording was finished, Warner came on board. That is a great story. And then you followed up that self-titled recording of 2018 with the quietly compelling Tree of Light recording in 2019. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Tree of Light was a very new beginning for me because the Tree of Light is also when I became a dad. It does change your life because you've got someone to look after. When you have kids, you've got someone else into your life. My daughter came in, right? And just before that, my wife, it was uh, the first time she was pregnant, actually. Of course, I don't really talk about that kind of stuff, you know, and I haven't been asked in a long time, but that leads to Ukiyo, which is the big track of, uh, of Tree of Light.
the key I composed it when my wife and I lost our first baby. Yeah, I composed it with all the pain. I had so much pain for me. I had so much pain, obviously, for my wife. And I had so much pain for the baby. And basically, you know, you don't really know what to do in these states. For me, what I always do is put my emotions into the piano because it heals me. You know, that, that's how it works for me. And then I heard those calls. And first, I don't know why I wanted to call it my Fukushima because it was kind of my disaster, right? And then when I carried on, you know, composing it, all these notes were coming together. It's, it's really weird. It's like if something, I mean, that's how I feel, you know, when I make music is pieces are coming together. Together. And if it's not right, it's almost carry on your know, like, like it's it's like energy, right? And so those notes align together, then they form a piece. And then I had the second part of the piece that came with kind of like you know little notes coming here, you know, and there, like ta 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 ta. And this was the hope. And for me, it was kind of like the fact that I believe there is more to life. And from there, we need to be strong and carry on because there is nothing we can do. And so it was a kind of a very powerful track for me. And it was a, and it is you know very delicate track. a very moving story. I'm sorry about the loss of that child. Let's talk about your new Warner Classics album, Bliss, which is a collection of 11 titles, and you've been rolling them out one per month. Warner's, yeah, they thought basically the, the Bliss album, they thought it would be a good way to give, you know, um, our fans basically a track a month, right? And I thought, great, for sure, let's do it. Why not? You know, I really do love your comment that accompanies the album notes. Your inspiration has been guided by your desire to pay tribute to the anonymous, but true heroes of normal life. Society focuses mostly on money. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I mean, like, it's very driven, you know, toward fame and, and money and, and being the, the best but, and being seen, basically. And yes, this album, Iblis, is, first it means Iblis which for me is really this state where you feel at home. You feel just so good about yourself, about everything. You're just so good. This kind of, and it's really hard to find because you probably have it when you wake up or maybe when you're in the shower, you know, some people have that. And basically when all these things, you know, were starting to happen, you know, even with COVID and stuff, of course, you know, a lot of like love and compassion for other people trying to help that we don't talk that much about, but that are so useful, right? I mean, and basically the real heroes, right? So we're talking, you know, nurses, we're talking doctors, but we're also talking, you know, someone making a house, right? Money by itself cannot do it, right? You need people to do the actual work, and that's really, really tough. So all these basically unsung heroes, you know, who have contributed to humanity, basically, doing pretty much everything, you know, without them, we, we can't do anything. And I thought that everybody has a story, and everybody, for me, is important. I don't think you have someone better than another one. And at the end of the day, what do we all want? I believe, being happy. Wake up in the morning, do what you love, and be at peace. My way in this tribute, I did want to make to the unsung heroes, so basically to pretty much everybody, because everybody's a story, you know. And I love hearing stories every time, you know, when I travel or something, I meet people and taxi drivers, they have amazing stories. I'm sure you've heard some, you know. So their story, their life matters. Someone who's gonna blow glass, his life matters, might have a very cool story. Everybody's a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Your music is very cinematic, very visual, and you build it chapter by chapter, character by character, growing into a piano tale that for the listener will become an unforgettable experience of bliss. 
Tell us about how you build your compositions chapter by chapter. I did quite a lot of things for this album. Yes, it is a story. And for me, everything, you know, is a story, right? But this story is what touches me the most. The same story I said about the Unsung Heroes. Everything matters as long as we can find our, our bliss. This kind of inner peace that some people call. So the way I wanted to record it, I was like, I don't want to come with any pre-ideas or anything. I just want to put myself in a state. This state was to focus on the music, on this energy. And when I went to the south of France, to my friend's place, he's got an old house like 30 kilometers north from Saint-Tropez. It's a very quiet town, you know, basically in a forest. You need like a lot of turning around on, on the road and stuff. It's quite, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And he has a piano. And I, I go sometimes and visit visit him and just play the piano and I love that place and the year prior to the recording so I went there I loved it so much that basically to record this I was like try and see with Pierre you know if we can record because that's an amazing place to make an album the way I make Bliss I should just not think about anything just think about this story of Bliss how do I tell my story a week prior you know, to the recording I went there and I fasted, so I did not eat anything because I like to challenge myself, you know, I like to challenge my body and my mind because I think it's all connected. And I think science, you know, thanks God for that, is <laughs> saying, right? That's why we need to be healthy. And <laughs> and I basically recorded pretty much the whole album. So I was creating the pieces at the same time. The only one was La Vernatelle because I started it before and I finished it there. So I started it there, finished it there, but not in a different time. There's a beautiful video that you made of that track. Yeah, so when I made La Vernatelle, I want to film a video there because I was like, that's exactly where I composed it and it was such a powerful moment. So I asked my friend if we could film there. And he is actually in the video. I asked him if he could, you know, star in it, be with me, you know, because I just wanted to reproduce the moment basically when I made it. I would say the album overall is very meditative and your Instagram page describes you as a meditation advocate. Mental health is everything service to others. That seems to be entirely summed up by this album Bliss. Yes, totally. I think music is extremely powerful. I think sound is extremely powerful, right? If you say someone, you know, some bad words, you shout at his face. The guy is going to feel horrible, right? But the same for music. If you put some lovely music around someone, that might help them. And I think now more and more studies are coming out about the healing potential of music on depression and anxiety and stuff, right? I think it's uh, very important. So that when I make my music, I always have, you know, my intent to bring something positive. That's why it is cinematic, it is evocative and dreamy, and always a little touch of hope, basically. So I became, you know, kind of, yes, a meditation advocate because I do it basically every day. I think it's amazing. I think it needs to be desacralized because when people talk about meditation, 
everybody's got like you know when you think sometimes meditation like me you think whoa <laughs> this is boring this is not for me come on you know and everybody is like yeah no i know how to do it but you know whatever but when you really do it when you understand what it can do to you you're like oh my god this is incredible it's not boring it's actually very cool i've been depressed my whole life because i think that's the way you know i grew up again looking for hope you know in my music and then at some point you know started to make a living things go well but i'm still depressed and basically at some point i, I touched bottom you know roughly 10 years ago and i was like whoa and um, I wanted to learn more about my brain, basically, because I was like, whoa, <laughs> what do I do? I'm so unhappy. And, you know, so I tried a bit of everything, like, you know, little drugs and, you know, and weed and cocaine and, you know, and those stuff. And, and I have no shame to say it. Why? Because I think, you know, so many people do it. Everything is a taboo. And sometimes I think it's a bit annoying, right? Just, just be yourself. So that's why, you know, and I'm not ashamed of it. I did what I did. And I was hurting myself, like, so, so much, you know, and it was not helping me and, and it was hurting people around me. And, you know, and at some point I was like, okay, I need to change things. So I read many, many books and I came across meditation, but I was more interested in how I could basically have nice experiences because, you know, I need to, to be busy and stuff. So that's why I ended up doing yoga and I did hot yoga. <laughs> and in three weeks time, I was feeling so much better. You know, I had no alcohol. I had no weight in my system, nothing. <laughs> and basically I, I just, you know, started everything I could and understand, okay, how can I help, you know, feeling better? So I started meditating. But when I was young, I was kind of taught how to meditate. And then when you start doing it, you realize, whoa, you can actually do like amazing things. And there are a lot of research now, right? More and more about meditation, what, what it can do in terms of like your body, your mind. And it is so true. I think it really is one of the best things. And meditation, again, doesn't have to be boring. doesn't have to be seated, cross-legged, you know, and looking up your hands, you know, in the air and be like, ah, <laughs> no, you don't have to do that. It's just basically quieting the mind. And when you read a book, it, you're already meditating because you're focusing on one thing. To meditate is basically to focus, you know, on one thing or to quiet the mind, right? And when I play the piano, I meditate. And when I realized that, I was like, wow, how can I take it further? And then I started basically to ameliorate and find a way to help, you know, people meditate. My dreams are better, you know, my life is better. You know, you see what I mean? Like, uh, there is so much stuff. It's really amazing. Another theme of the album seems to be trust and getting out of your comfort zone, kind of illustrated in Epiphany. Yeah, it really is. Because for me, Epiphany is this moment when you realize something, right? And I think on this planet, that's where we are at. Whatever you believe, whatever you are, whoever you are, we all have to come to a point of realization that guys, I mean, this is not working. It's not working for the planet. It's not working for us. I get extremely emotional. That's why I don't watch TV because when I watch TV, you know, it brings me down to see all this, you know, madness around the world from everything. I don't understand how in the 21st century people are still fighting or, you know, or racism. I never understood racism. And I experienced racism myself, you know, believe it or not. I mean, I experience racism even day to day. I mean, I, I'm a white man. My wife is a North African. You know, we experience racism racism pretty much every day but much less in England actually than in France for some reason so I don't know why epiphany is that moment So that's why I wanted to also show it with the mountains of the Mont Blanc to have a kind of realization on a practical fact like guys look at that 
This is the Mont Blanc, that was 1998, like a bit more than 20 years ago. Look what it is now. But this is for me just the tip of the iceberg, so hence Le Mont Blanc. That was how I wanted to kind of give an image, right? I mean, that's what for me art does. It's always being a message. A song is a message and sometimes, you know, I mean, for me, my songs are without words, but it's the same message. Let's talk about the message on Sweet Dream. Beautiful track, starts with this quarter note pulse. And the beautiful video, very meditative, many images of water and the mountains and the forest. You're playing on top of a mountain. I'm a bit of a mystical person. Have you ever had a lucid dream? It's very interesting. A lucid dream is when you wake up within your dream. So you're dreaming and then you are in your dream and you're like, oh, hold on, I know I'm dreaming. And you see things as if it's right now you and I talking, right? Exactly the same. Because most of the time in our dreams, we are passive, right? We're more observers. And a lucid dream, you become a participant. And it's amazing. And I wanted to have this track called Sweet Dream because it's part, you know, the same story of bliss, right? We make our dreams. Okay, so perhaps you haven't had a, a lucid dream, but you probably had a dream that was so bad that when you woke up the next day, you were not feeling really well. We all have, right? And sometimes when you have such a good dream, we wake up the next day, oh my God, I'm feeling so good. And that's why, you know, this track is called a Sweet Dream, basically. B is a very lively track and has this sort of post minimalist feel to it. Yeah, B is just full of hope and full of attention. And it comes and it goes and it comes back. It's about what I could visualize was all this beauty that we have as as families. Because we all have a family, you know, one way or another. Or at least, you know, 99.99% of us. My experience in life, I've been through, you know, really a lot of, honestly, <laughs> I mean, when 18 years old, I left everything, I was just by myself. I was alone, alone, alone. But I always had hope. A lot of things were not my fault, you know, like, I mean, nothing was my fault. I was a child, right? But you struggle and when you struggle so much and when you meet people, the only thing you see ties everybody together is love. You have a dog, right? You love your dog. And even if he's a dog, he's alive, he's got feelings. And, and especially dogs, actually, they have this unconditional love, right? So whatever you do to them, they will be here. This is, for me, this is it. If we have love all around, we have everything. And B is this kind of buzz through the awakening when we realize that everything we experience is the answer to pain, love. No love, nothing exists. Thanks for the wonderful conversation and for joining us on the podcast to discuss your new Warner Classics release, Bliss. Thank you so much for having me. Speak to you soon.